expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Rested, refreshed, and ready to bring you episode 123 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where it's kind of like an off-season in sports. The week after San Diego Comic-Con, you don't really know what's going to come out. It's not really an off-season. It's more like that boring time in sports where baseball is the only thing going on. So it's like, SEC's done. Nothing else if like one or two things in like nerd television and, and stuff like that's going on. So it's like, it's a lull period, pretty much. Yeah, you get that big rush of all this stuff, and then it's like you have a week or two to decompress before the movies start coming out, and then fall TV starts, so we're getting ready to get into that rush, so it's like it's like NASCAR's off-season, you know how like they have two weeks off in NASCAR before they really start <laughs> doing stuff again, because there's no real off-season in auto racing, apparently, but uh, man, I'm ready to go, I'm James with them alongside. The well-rested Merck with one arm, Nick Battaglion, yeah man, our talk about San Diego Comic-Con last week did really, really well. And just a lot. There's just so much. I remember the first time we covered it, and we were recording, still recording at my place. We had packets of like no lie, like yeah. seventy plus pages, and we probably used maybe five of the seventy-three pages. And then we got mad because we're like, we typed all this out. We didn't even need it because a lot of it was memory. It's not that we weren't right. using the content. It was just that we based a lot of it off of memory. Because so, how can you forget all the great stuff that happened at San Diego Comic Con? But it's funny. I was looking through our Twitter numbers. And do you know what our most socially active thing was on our Twitter? Tell me. Lucifer. Lucifer was number one as far as trending on our Twitter for our coverage of San Diego Comic-Con. And why not, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's you got to think about this, too, is this really shows. I mean, remember, we had uh, Joe Henderson on, the showrunner, way before Lucifer premiered. And he was actually on the talk to premiere last year. You look at what has transpired since the show was announced. You know, people say, oh, they're changing it up and they're going to ruin it too. Hey, it's now one of the hottest, if not the hottest panel at SDCC and one of the hottest shows on television, no pun intended. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, I think people are starting to have, they saw what happened at the end of last season. I think people are starting to have that turnaround, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think it's time to chill on, like, initial reviews and stuff like that, because, you know, some people, even, you, you listen to a couple of people that said, oh, it's going to be awful, it's nothing like the comics, and then people started piling on before even seeing the show. Right. But then you see the show, and it's like, Dude, I know it's not exactly like the comics, but they're doing some good stuff here. Yep, and uh, sorry, Darth Vader just went off in the background. Well, but, uh, you know, he had some things to say about Lucifer. <laughs> Pretty much. He, he if anybody one, would know about the dark side. He was one of those reviewers that said, it's going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if Darth Vader was a movie critic? He'd hate everything. He, yeah, well, he wouldn't be able to show like, any emotion when he's like watching. Like, I just want a picture... Darth Vader watching The Notebook and, like, wondering if he cries while he's watching the ending of it. I would like to see the Emperor review films, too. I'd give that two stars out of five. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. plot was all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but we have, a, we have a fun show uh, ahead for people this week. But as always, guess what? Come next... We're going to be pulling our long boxes again. It's time for what we're reading this week right here on the Don Nerdy Podcast. 
This is Karen Ashley from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time that we get our long boxes. We discuss what we're reading this week. As always, it's time for what we're reading. We have two new books this week, and James, I'll go first this week. Now, I watch Doctor Who. Not a lot, but like there's times I'll be sitting around in my apartment. I'll be like, eh, let me watch an episode or two. I have nothing better to do. Right. But there are, so that introduced me to Captain Jack Harkness. And now I'll say this. I want to preface this by saying this. I haven't really watched any Torchwood. My only knowing of Captain Jack is from Doctor Who. So when I saw that when we were in D.C. last month and or two months ago and we saw John Berriman talk. He said, hey, we're going to have a Torchwood comic coming out. And so this week I said, you know what? I'm going to grab that Torchwood comic and learn something about this and learn about Torchwood. And, and especially because, you know, Torchwood, number one, the series is being written by John Berriman and Carol Berriman. The art is being done by Antonio Fuso and Pasquale Colano. And the colors are done by Marco Lusco. Now, I will say this. It's also published by Titan Comics. In the beginning of the book... And most of whenever we see Jack somewhere on the book, we do get that Berriman feel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like yeah. you know, like you get that it's John Berriman. Like it's got that type of humor and some of the ways the words that are written in the dialogue. It's very Berriman-esque. I'll say that. The big problem with this book is that it has a lot of events going on inside of it. And it doesn't really tie itself down to one of them. It's just, ah. it's a myriad of different events. For example, like you'll have, hey, this team's getting back together. And next thing you know, you see, there's a panel where like a, you see like a crack and eat a ship pretty much. And then next thing you have ninjas on jet skis falling out of the sky. It's like, what's going on? So it's twist heavy, basically. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where like you and I was reading it. I was like, okay, I'm trying to get a sense of what's going on here in terms of story elements, and there was not a lot of background given as to why what's happening mm. is happening. And to me, this series, I think, is more written towards, if you're somebody who's watched Torchwood, uh, who is a big Doctor Who fan, a big fan of Captain Jack, you'll more likely understand this than somebody like me who didn't have as deep of a background, as much of a background with, with Torchwood. Again, as I said prior, my mostly my main encounters with Captain Jack is from what I saw of him on Doctor Who. So I th- for me, this is going to be, I can't penalize it because too much because I, you know, again, a lot of it falls on me for not being a fan and not under, really understanding everything that's going on in a sense in terms right. of just a story because, again, there's certain characters in here I don't know. I'm going to give this a pickup. It's only, like I said, it's only because I think that just from the way this is writing and the way I know Berriman and, and Carol Berriman and John Berriman, uh, I feel this is gonna kind of even itself out when issues two, three, and four come out. It's gonna it's gonna find a way to to get back even and kind of establish what's fully going on. So how is the art though? The art in this is really really good. Uh, the art in it is clean, really detailed, and it feels like honestly, it feels like a reading. Uh, has kind of a dynamite esque look to it a little bit in terms of the in terms of the way the art style is. Uh, it's really really good. Again, it's detailed. The colors pop, especially when you're looking at like things like the background. The backgrounds really pop. But the sky, the water is really really detailed. You can see all these little individual waves when people are standing in it. It's really really good from the art standpoint. Again, the writing standpoint in terms of the dialogue, 
you do get that Behrman-esque feel. There are parts of humor in there that I did like. Uh, it's just that when you have events being you know, played into it, it doesn't really tie itself down to one. It's just a myriad of different things happening all at once. It can, can kind of cause yeah. some confusion. Too much wow in the first issue then. Yeah, pretty much. But you, sir... Got the squad back together this week. Yeah, I decided, you know, with Suicide Squad coming out in theaters, well, they dropped the Suicide Squad Rebirth issue from DC Comics this week, so I figured, why not just jump into that? It was written by Rob Williams, Philip Tan did the pencils. The anchors were done by a few people, Jonathan Glapton, Scott Hanna, and Sandu Florea, and then the colors done by Alex Sinclair, letters by Travis Lanham. Now, basically... In this first issue, it's almost like a zero issue for Rick Flagg. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, you see Amanda Waller and what looks a lot like President Obama, even though they don't come out and say it's President Obama. Well, it is President Obama. Yeah, she looks a lot like President Obama. So basically the confrontation between he and Amanda Waller about the Suicide Squad, which, you know, is kind of typical for any president that would find out what was going on. And then you see Amanda Waller try and find that leader and she talks to Rick Flagg and... I don't want to give anything away about that because it might be a spoiler for the movie. It might be a spoiler, and it's definitely a spoiler for the comic. So I don't want to give anything away about that. But basically, the squad's already together. And they're trying to face off against this... I, I can drop this. It's a metahuman bomb, basically. Yeah. It's almost like the the inhuman equivalent to DC doing a Terrigen bomb type deal. Yeah. So the squad's fighting against that, and, you know, you get the typical things from all of the characters. You know, Harley's Harley, Deadshot's Deadshot... Captain Boomerang is Captain Boomerang, so you get all that nice little single character stuff. And then it's like they're trying to prove the point of why they need a leader, is basically what this first issue is about. And there's a lot of action in it, don't get me wrong, and the dialogue is, you know, it's it's quirky at times, and it's definitely funny in places as well. I think that they captured Harley pretty darn well in this in this issue as well, and they definitely give her the movie treatment look, at least in the beginning of the book anyway. So, I mean, I definitely like the direction that they're going with this. I do think that this is absolutely a true rebirth issue and that, you know, there's not a whole lot of meat on the bone. They're just trying to give you the appetizer first before you get served the full course. So before you get to the first issue, they're giving you a little bit of taste of what they're, what it's going to be like, especially at the end of the book. It seems like the end of the book does a really good job as what would be a zero issue or rebirth issue to kick off what is going to be coming later on in the issues. Yeah, I liked it in the beginning of the book when you have that conflict between the president and Waller. And then you get this night. I think it transitions really nice from Waller into the actual squad themselves. And I think someone who actually stood out in this was Captain Boomerang. There's a scene, I'm not going to spoil what it is, but let's just say they have to retrieve something in the way he does it. I, I kind of yeah. laugh at it. I'm like, that's wow. That's just, again, showing why... They need a leader, and I love what they did with Rick Flagg. I like the exposition they give on him. Honestly, it gives really great depth into why Flagg is this right. leader of the Suicide Squad because of the de- things that they do for him. And, it's, and I liked it the way that they did it, too. I'm not going to say what it is because, again, it's a big spoiler thing. But I like the way that they did it in terms of this isn't just a guy Waller just picked out of a group said, here, we're going to have right. him do this. Right. It was... No, here's this guy's history, here's what's going on right now in his present, and here's what I think he can do in the future, and then that's what it is, pretty much. This is what Rebirth's been about. Rebirth's been about going back to what worked in the past, bringing it to the present, modernizing it, and making it work for today's readers. Rick Flagg has gotten so lost in the shuffle 
in the Suicide Squad over the last several years, and especially in the New 52, because it's always been more about Deadshot or right. Harley Quinn with the Suicide Squad. But what they did here is they brought Rick Flagg back in, and they gave him a purpose, and they told you exactly why he's coming, why he's going to be in this version of the Suicide Squad, and why they need him. So I love that they decided to do that. The art is really, really good. It's nice and crisp, even though you have a few anchors, different anchors on this issue. I don't feel like it misses a beat at all. And again, even the close-ups or the faraway shots, I don't think that there's anything lacking there. We've had problems with that in in a few books that we've reviewed over the last few weeks, both on our website and here on the show. So I got to tell you, man, I was worried about this initially because I wasn't too hot on the last reincarnation of the Suicide Squad that they tried to do at the tail end of the New 52. I'm digging it. They brought back classic Amanda Waller as well, so I'm going to go ahead and put this down as a pull for me too. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of What Reading Sweep Will Come Next. A review of Batman the Killing Joke, the animated movie, is come next right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we just came off of SDCC 2016, but in 2015, Nick, they announced something that we're really excited about. And guess what? It finally came out. Batman The Killing Joke animated version from DC and Warner Brothers. And man, I got to tell you, they weren't kidding when they said they were going to add some new material to this thing. Yeah, they added some new material. They added about a half hour extra of Batgirl stuff. And now I watched the, I don't know about you if you did this, but I watched the bonus features and they kind of described the whole process of making a killing joke. And they said what they wanted to do is they wanted to show what she was losing by, of course, getting shot. So they wanted to add a half hour of her doing things like acrobatics and everything else and fighting crime. But it just, it didn't work for me in this. Yeah, I, I gotta be honest, man. To me, it was 30 minutes of unnecessary filler. Yeah. You already know what Batgirl is losing if you're a fan. You already know. I mean, even if you're kind of a fan, even if you didn't read the comics or you haven't seen Batgirl in, in anything else, I mean, is if you've seen Batgirl at all in an animated series or even know of her, don't you kind of know what she's losing? Did we need... And it certainly didn't need to be 30 minutes. Well, no, and here's the thing, as they even alluded to in the bonus features, that, you know, the, the book itself, The Killing Joke itself, is a short book. Right. And, and so I said, we need to add something. Now, what I think I would have done was, instead of adding that... They tried to add stuff with her and Batman, but it really didn't work in a sense. And I think that really what it should have done was, I, I know some people are saying like, well, maybe they should have, you know, we spent an extra 30 to establish more of the Batman Joker relationship. I think it should have been more spent on the relationship between her and her father. Because I agree. if you had that, especially with that scene where he's at the carnival and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it would have been a lot more powerful. But then when you get to that scene where she does get shot and he's in her apartment, you're like, it just, there was not, I didn't have that emotional tie to it as I did when I read the book. Here was a missed opportunity, I thought. Remember the scene when they were talking about, oh, well, it's his father-daughter day and they and he's going to do this, this, and this. And back right. then it's just like, I just tell him I need to talk to him kind of thing. And if they would have spent a the, well, let's call it prequel. If they would have spent the prequel time on something like that, like have one of their daddy-daughter days where she's still growing up, but they're like having dinner together, like playing Scrabble. I don't know. To me, that would have been more of a sense of a loss. And of course there's going to be a connection between Batgirl and Batman. You don't need to establish that in any way. Of course there's going to be a relationship there. Of course he's going to care. That's, you know, that's Commissioner Gordon's daughter, for one, and someone that's been under his tutelage 
for two. So you don't need to establish that. So I thought that that was kind of unnecessary. I also think that the whole sex scene thing, it's not as controversial as everybody was making it out to be. It's not controversial, but it really was awkwardly placed oh, in there. Oh, of course it was awkward. <laughs> well, because, I mean, B- Batman is giving this thing of, like, you know, this guy at Paris, France, is he, you know, who's the villain in the first part of the, the movie, the whole Batgirl, if you want to call it a prequel or a prologue, if you will. Prologue and is a better word. He, and he's saying, you know, well, he's trying to objectify you. The next thing you know, he's sleeping with her. You know what I'm saying? Like, See, I don't have as much of a problem with that as you're going to do it on a rooftop. Just like out in the middle, of, like, like out in the middle of you know open air. You know, you're just gonna throw your masks off, and, and well, maybe he didn't. Yeah, I, but, we never saw him take anything off. But, but the camera, <laughs> when the camera pans up to the gargoyle and the gargoyle's looking down, like is he like a cuckold or something like that? He's like just sitting there watching. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm waiting for him to like stroke his stone dick, pretty would, much. Would you? Would you like a box of donuts? Right. <laughs> and Goliath from Gargoyles just—it turns out to be him, and he's just like, yeah. I mean, uh... I don't know, man. It just seems like, you know, at any point a helicopter could have gone by or there's Zeppelins right. all over Goth- Gotham all the time anyway. So. I'm waiting, or then you see, like, like Titanic, like her sweaty palm, you know, like grabs like the stone ledge or something like that. It's it just, just... it just. I mean, well, they didn't really spend a whole lot of time. In the no. There was, it certainly wasn't a, a true sex scene either. You see her take her shirt off. Big but, deal. <laughs> but I want to mention something about after that, though, because after that... The problem with the whole prologue with Batgirl is that they really reduced her from this awesome, if you want to call her a sidekick and hero and stuff like that, to really a girl in her late teens, early 20s who's really clingy and really, well, you know, stuff like that. You know? I, I, I get the obsession thing. I, I understand that and I understand why she'd be, you know, attracted to him in that sense. And But at the same time, you're right. It's like they, they didn't know what Batgirl they wanted. It's like, okay, do you want the strong, independent Barbara Gordon who's maybe just as smart as Batman is and who can kick just as much ass? Or do you want the young, inexperienced, you know, early 20s, late teens Batgirl who's, you know, Mooney and, you know, being the teenager that, you know, some and men are just as guilty of this as women, by the way, of being, you know, kind of clingy and, you know, obsessed and I'll do anything for this person because yeah. I, I'm in love with them or infatuated with them or something like that. So it goes both ways, but it's like, which one do you want it to be? And if they would have stuck right. with one or the other, I probably would have been okay with it, even though we know that's not who Batgirl really is. Right. And I think that, you know, speaking of being indecisive, I think something they were indecisive on was what era do they want this to be taking place in? Because we see that there are computers and, and tech, you know, modern technology in there. I think if this was set more in the true, you know, 1988 or late 80s year when this was written, I think it would have had a lot more simplicity to it. I yeah. think it would have probably been carried a little bit more. Outside of the Batgirl thing, when this thing really goes into the actual Killing Joke story, I'm just going to say this. This movie made me look at the book in a different light. It made me appreciate the book more, not because the movie was good, which the movie was not good to me. It just showed that this story, The Killing Joke, doesn't really properly lend itself to be properly translated from book to screen based on how it's written, especially with the way it ends, and also with the artwork in it as well. I'm not sure that it's anything but the artwork for me as far as that goes because I think that it's hard to capture the mood of this book in an adaptation without in and i'm not sure there is a proper 
animation style. Like when they went to the flashback stuff with Joker, which is one of the best parts of the graphic novel for me. I know that they tried to do that noir style cartoonish thing. I mean, sometimes it seems like it played off. Sometimes it didn't. But I will say that as far as what they got right, what they got really right, I think, was that scene in the beginning with uh, Batman going to talk to Joker in prison and the whole confrontation, you know, one of us is going to kill each other someday. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then he finds out that it's not the Joker. That, that scene was completely, absolutely 100% right. And the scene where they're fighting in the upside down version of Joker's old house, you know, the whole, why aren't you laughing thing? Mm -hmm. They got that absolutely right as well. I think. Well, I look at the, at the art of it and the animation style. And again, a lot of it actually more than three quarters of the movie itself is drawn like you've seen in the regular other DC animation films, but there are those moments, as you mentioned, with Batman and Joker's cell, and also a scene where in the flashback where Joker has that maniacal laugh when he first becomes the Joker after being flushed out of the chemical plant, those shots there were pretty much stylized to try to grab the way that Brian Boland did his work and did the art in, in an attempt. And you can tell when you're watching this that that the art is different in a sense. It has a little bit more of a hyper-realism to it because they're trying to get onto that Boland art style. The, the scene that didn't work, and there's two of them, that didn't work, one's in terms of both, mostly an art style, just how the people are looking in that central time, and the other being the scene where Gordon is going through all those pictures of Barbara. Mm-hmm. It's so dimly lit that when in the movie that when you look at it in the book, it's, it's it just looks a lot better. It looks a lot more realistic, whereas and you get more of a, a sense of panic and, and Gordon being broken in the book than you do in the movie. The other one is when Barbara Gordon gets shot because in the book she has this look of shock of like, Oh no, whereas in the movie she's kind of like has that Daria from MTV look of, oh, is a gun pointed to my, you know, yeah, see, st- but that, stomach. That goes to my point of there really isn't an animation style that's going to be able to capture that properly. Right. And you can't do a stop motion of that because that wouldn't make any sense. So basically they did the best they could, but. As you were watching this, and it's not that it's a bad story because it's a good story, but as you're watching this, the the thing that I kept thinking was, was that, is this one of those times where this is just something that they just shouldn't have made? And that's what I was getting to, and that's my whole idea on this, is that the movie is not a good movie, but it's not the filmmaker's fault. It's just the fact that the killing joke, the actual Alan Moore story itself, even the Brian Bullen art does not properly lend itself to be translated onto screen properly. Right. I'm not sure it's way. anybody's fault, though. That's no. the thing. I don't think there's really any blame. No, I don't fault anywhere. the filmmakers yeah. at all. And the thing is, is when you get to the ending, a lot of people say, well, it's just Batman Joker laughing. And that's how it ends in the book, with them laughing the camera yeah. panning down. Right. When you look at, at it in the book, it's totally different. That when you look at it in the movie, you feel like there should be an added scene or, you know, after that to really tie it up at the end or an added sound effect of like sirens blaring in the background. But what you don't, you don't get that. What you get is Batman Joker laughing, camera pans down. That's it. It, again, it works in the book. It just doesn't work in the movie. Right. Well, we do see police lights in the distance at one point before that. So they are there and he does say police run away. So he does, I mean, they do establish that, yeah, it's coming. So I can't really fault them for that, but 
Uh, I, it just it just seems like it's it's not like, and I didn't think it was a bad movie either. I just thought that they made some bad choices, especially with the prologue. That was my biggest yeah. fault with this. And I mean, other than that, they didn't really do anything wrong as far as as adapting it. It just visually, it just wasn't the same because it couldn't be. But I mean, Mark Hamill was amazing. Hamill was really good as Joker. Again, Kevin Conroy was really good as Batman. Again, I think the person that was really wasted just from the storyline, so that was Tara Strong, who, of yeah. course, plays Batgirl. I think that, again, if you want to build on Batgirl, you want to build up her getting paralyzed by Joker, I would have had her spend more time in scenes with her father. Or if you didn't want to go that route, you want to go to a different route, Remember, Joker, he's in that upside-down version of his home. He talks about having, you know, a multiple choice. You know, why let your reality be, you know, be one right. thing where you can allow it to be multiple choice. If they want to say, you know what, let's add maybe like one or two more different, you know, flashback background things for the Joker. That way it brings his whole reality thing full circle. Because when he mentions that, I kind of like forgot about that. I'm like, oh, that's right. You know, it's might what I'm seeing in this flashback might not be his actual origin, you know? I think Why Aren't You Laughing is the biggest point of the whole story because it's like that's kind of what started his descent into madness and into criminalism was the fact that he was a failed comedian. Nobody would laugh, and they mention that several times, like when he snaps at his pregnant wife in the flashbacks and a couple of other times as even they're going through the flashbacks. So... The focus, if if they would have given it a little bit more on that and give us given us maybe a little more from that backstory standpoint, I think that would have been better. And you're right, they totally wasted Tara Strong as as Batgirl. I wish they would have at least pick a lane. You know which which Batgirl they decided they wanted her to be. I don't think that this was a time to be wishy washy. But I mean, it, again, it just to me, I, I think that you were right about the scene about Gordon and the pictures. It didn't play off as well in in a, in a movie as it did on the actual uh, graphic novel. I think the only way to really adapt this, and we'll never see it. I'm going to just call it right now. We'll never see this. The only way to do this properly from page to screen is live action. No, we, we won't see that. And I think that, you know, you mentioned like when the Joker snaps, Kyle, like when he first becomes a Joker in a sense, like what sends him over the edge into this whole thing with crime. I really think that it was when his wife died and that like, really like what it's like a million to one odds of that happening in this freak accident because that was like him being finally broken i mean you know that was the final straw being broken in terms of his i think will to live and then you know the thing with batman knocks him into the the chemicals that changed probably changed his mindset and then that's when he becomes joker per what we see in the movie in the killing joke but and the origins of the joker i mean we can go back and forth on how there isn't really one well this is one version of it and i also think part of it is remember he was drawn into this whole criminal element by needing money for his wife and then he goes there it goes wrong and then he's left holding the bag kind of thing in a place that he didn't even want to be in the first place right so so many things add up to how he became the joker that it's hard to really pinpoint one thing it was just a descent into madness that started at one place and went to another so i think that it was it was it was told exactly the way it needed to be told but visually is where i think it got lost more than anything else and in the prologue though so my two biggest criticisms of it are the prologue part and the part where visually i just don't know if it was able to be done 
honestly, if you go on YouTube, there's a way that this the Killing Joke I think really gets uh, brought out in a realistic light, and that is there's a somebody went out this group of people actually did like a motion comic, and they actually had like voice actors, like these couple guys like act as the Joker. And it really works well. Like yeah, that has, would have been the only way to do it. Like it has like sound effects. I mean, you sh- it's showing you like still panels, but you hear like rain falling down. They have certain right. sound effects, so it's like an audio book per se, pretty much. And it works a lot better because again, you're still seeing the, the Alan Moore, Brian Bolin book, but it has an added audio dimension right. to it. And that but, was that's a possibility. I could see that working really well. Yeah, I mean, again, let's let's go into our ratings. Again, my thing is, it's just this book, just again, doesn't lend itself to be properly translated onto screen. And again, it's not the fault of the filmmakers over at Warner Brothers Pictures. It's just the fact that this was just a hard story. The way it's written and structured and and drawn, it doesn't properly lend itself to be translated. And I'm glad. I'm not saying that. You know, this is a terrible movie. You know, it should never have been made. They tried. At, I was at least they tried. I can say yeah. that. You know, as yeah. long as it's not like we're not going to live in this world of like, well, what if they made a Killing Joke movie? They tried. It didn't translate well. And so, hey, that's all you can really ask for. As far as the bonus features go, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, some of that's like already came out, like Dark Knight Returns and some other stuff. Uh, you also get that five or you know ten-minute look at Justice League Dark animated movie that's coming out. Uh, overall, again, the, the prologue with Batgirl didn't work for me. Uh, we talked about the art style and everything else. And just the, the ending really, I know it's from what the, it is in the book, but when you see it on screen, you're like, okay, there should be another scene to close this out, not just this, pretty much. I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10 Joker smiles. Yeah, I, I got to say, I agree with a lot of that. And I think that that, I don't think it's anybody's fault. I don't blame the people at Warner Brothers. I don't blame the people at DC. I don't blame anybody for wanting to make this. But again, you don't know until... You do it whether or not it's going to translate on the screen. And you're right. We would always ask ourselves, you know, what if they made a Killing Joke animated movie and all the controversy surrounding the book? And I think that they really did the best that they could with with what they had to offer. The only thing that was the biggest problem of this is the prologue. It didn't work. They couldn't pick a lane. Um, I think that they had an opportunity to spotlight Batgirl a little bit and show a little bit more strength. They didn't do that. Uh, They've done that with other Bat family characters in the past with Nightwing and Damien and and stuff like that. So I think that that was a little bit of a miss there. I will say that we cannot ignore the fact that not just Kevin Conroy and uh, and Mark Hamill, but the entire voice cast did a really, really good job with what they were given to work with. And and I think that that that's something that definitely should be pointed out. There were a couple scenes that really, really worked well. But I can't disagree with your rating. I'm going to have to go with, with six awkward jokes out of ten. And that's going to do it for our review of Batman The Killing Joke, the animated movie come up next. S.H.I.E.L.D. has a new director. Who is it? We'll find out next because Nerd News is coming up on a Down Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, this is Flash Gordon, Sam Jones, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, time we get on our horses and we travel from King's Landing all the way to Winterfell because it's time for what, James? No! Our first story, it has been confirmed from HBO, Game of Thrones will end 
at season eight. Yeah, that comes right from HBO programming president Casey Bloys. And let me tell you this right now. Not only that, and we know the delay that's going to be happening for season seven. We found out a lot of stuff at the Television Critics Association summer press tour that season eight is going to be the final season. And not only that, season seven not going to be considered for Emmy consideration because it's being started too late. So they're going to miss the boat on that as well. Exactly. The reason, again, for that being because the weather doesn't allow them to shoot the way that the weather hasn't been responding well in terms of shooting. So they're like, okay, we have to push production back and pushing production back means that season seven will not be premiering until summer of next year. So that's, again, why they're so, you know, won't be able to make the Emmy nominations next year. And if you're somebody who's going to go into show running or writing itself, and this is the kind of person you want to work with, he said, quote, if I could get them to do more, I would take 10 seasons. But we wanted to take their lead with what they could do and what the best version of the show is. And I love that because yep. if you look something like Showtime does a lot, you know, look at a show like Weeds that Showtime did that I love. But after season five, it was the same mistakes, the same kind of concept writing over and over again. She's in doing, she's doing, you know, she's selling drugs. She's not selling drugs. She's selling drugs. And I guess I got really, really stupid the longer the seasons go. And I think that in terms of television, five to, uh, I think even eight for the most part is pushing it. But in this case, five to maybe seven to eight is where right. you want to go. I think anything more than 10 is insane. You look like Supernatural. It's got like, what, 20 seasons? I think they're in, like, it's, I think it's 11 or 12. I think they're right at the 11 or 12 mark. And, and they're still going. And, you know, we've had spinoffs of certain shows like that. And they talked about the spinoffs as well. And they've said they've talked about it. And I want to get this quote exactly. Because this is really important. And this is Blois again saying, It's not something I'm opposed to. But it has to make sense creatively. Right. And again, just like you said, this is the kind of person you want to work for. This is not this is not going to be a money grab. This is going to be if it makes sense, we'll do it. If it doesn't, why would we want to bastardize this show by doing a spinoff of it that just doesn't make sense just to do it? Exactly, man. Again, that's what you want if you're a writer. You want to look at somebody at the head of a corporation in television and say, you know what? I want more seasons, but I respect the writers and what they want to do and how far they can take this and stuff like that. You know, I think also the reason why it's going to stop at eight as well is remember, it really, there isn't any more canon for them to follow. So this works. And again, this is somebody who, you know, trusts the process of the writers. And again, you don't want to get to the point where it just gets too campy and too out there, you know? Right. And I'm going to bring up Walking Dead. But I mean, before the whole Negan thing happened, Walking Dead fans were starting to go, eh, I don't know. And now we've got Fear of the Walking Dead and people don't seem to be enjoying that nearly as much as the main run. Do you really want to get to the point of if you're Game of Thrones where people have loved you for so long, where your fans are going to start going, Eh, I don't know. Don't you want to end on that? You know, what happened to ending on a high note? Don't you want to end right. at the peak of popularity? Because I think that going out with a bang and going, that's what makes you be remembered. That's what makes people want to go back and watch your show on, on the HBO Go or, or to go buy the DVDs and the Blu-rays and stuff like that. It's ending on that high note so people will always talk about you more if you end on a high note rather than going 12 seasons saying, wow, that show ran really long, huh? Right. And speaking of word of mouth and talking, people can't stop talking about Star Wars. And guess what? It was just announced late this week that we might be getting a Star Wars television show on ABC. I got to tell you, when Channing Dungey of ABC Entertainment dropped that news to the Television Critics Association semi-annual press tour, 
I was intrigued because remember it was a couple years ago when they were talking about doing a Star Wars live action show and I think at the time they were going to do it on sci-fi and there was already 50 scripts written and all this other stuff but now it looks like we might be coming back on the mothership of ABC and here's the deal man one of the things that I loved that was said was that of course you know we know it's hush hush everything is but the th- one of the quotes was if you feel Marvel secretive Lucasfilms takes it to a whole other level. Man, is that true? Yeah, I mean, we know from personal experience that they, yeah, that, you know, yeah. they really secretive about their stuff. And what I love too is that you know they asked, you know, is this going to be a live action or animated? Or how they're going to do it? And they said pretty much they didn't say no, it's not going to be live action. They pretty much just said, you know, we're not going to discuss that at this time. I think that the only way you're going to do it, if you're going to put on ABC. And guarantee it's going to be on at night, more than likely. It's going to be live action. But the thing is, what could it be about? And you know what? With the with the Star Wars novels, with the publishing arm of Star Wars that not a whole lot of fans that aren't deep Star Wars fans know about, you want to talk about canon, dude? There is so much canon from this publishing arm <laughs> of Star Wars that you could go into if you really, really wanted to. I mean... I, we don't, and we don't even know how much of this they're they're going to touch on in the movies, like the Skywalker children and stuff like that. Obviously, you feel like in the movies, you're going to get that kind of stuff. But if they don't really focus on that too much, there's your perfect opportunity for a TV show. Here's what I want for a TV show: I want them to do nothing with Jedi's, nothing with Sith. There was a game a few years back that was going to be released called Star Wars thirteen thirteen. A deal with the whole. You know, underbelly of Coruscant, the whole smuggling stuff, you know, things, everything else like that. I want that. And of course, the game got canceled because Lucas Arts, right. you know, got closed and everything else like that. If they made a show about like the underbelly of like the galaxy and showed you just like the dirtiest of the dirty and the smugglers and everything else like that, I would love a show like that. You know, bring in the Mandalorians if you want to as well. I mean, it'd just be, I think, an intriguing show. If you wanted to do something on Tatooine as well, I'd be down with that, too, because there's a lot of shady stuff going on in Tatooine, too. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of options that you can use. And you're right, I don't need Jedi, I don't need Sith. You know, if this is all Empire, First Order, whatever they want, whatever time they want to set it in, if, if you're going to give me that, I'd be intrigued. And I think that for the general public that's not huge Star Wars fans, if you want to make it for everybody kind of thing, I think you can make everybody happy here. So, now, while, like like you said, they, they fell short of actually confirming this, but one of the quotes was, there is no timeline from Dungey. Right. If you want to read the tea leaves there to me, this is happening, but they oh, don't yeah. want to get fans' hopes up and say, yes, this is happening, because then they'll get bombarded until, I'm thinking at the earliest 2018 this happens yeah or or this could take place again depending on what it follows and again we don't know could this tie into the movies themselves we don't know again i hope not and i hope not either that's why i think the whole 1313 idea works well i mean if you want to call it star wars 1313 i would be excited for that that's that's really what i really want in a star wars movie go away from the jedi go away from the sith Focus on the show. Again, I, I do agree that we won't get it till 2018, possibly, I think, 2019. Uh, and all, I think it's going to come after the trilogy, the new trilogy oh, is hey, that done. That could be, too. Yeah, that could be as well. And speaking of, we're going to stay in the realm of Disney and Marvel as well, in terms, and also LucasArts. So we're going to st- go from Coruscant, and we're going to go from the world of Star Wars and the galaxy far, far away to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And we knew at the end of Season 3 that there was a new head 
of S.H.I.E.L.D. because it was pretty much revealed in the synopsis for this upcoming season that people still think that Coulson is dead. So guess who they cast? The goddamn Batman, Jason O'Mara, to be the new head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's funny that Batman's going to be the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Worlds colliding! But uh, no, Jason O'Mara's a really, really good actor. He's always been a a that-guy kind of actor. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they play this out because you know is it going to be like the pretty front man and we're still going to have colson pulling the strings behind the scenes and stuff like that or is this going to be a a a type of thing where he's like i'm just here to help out but then because he's the director he starts to kind of push his agenda a little bit as the season goes on because like i'm the director not you type of thing so it's going to be really interesting to see how they decide to pull the strings here especially with everything that's going to be going on behind the scenes and clearly Coulson's back in the field, it looks like. He's back in the field as just a regular Persian agent now. He's not the head anymore, as we know by now. And it's going to be intriguing how, again, we talked about you know them bringing in Ghost Rider last week and how that's going to kind of you know play into the fold of this and stuff like that. And, uh, this season, I think at least a good part of it is going to be them you know hunting down Daisy and trying to you know get Daisy to, to get him back with them because she's pretty much gone AWOL and her wanting to make things right and do right by others and stuff like that. So that's why she left Shield. But I think that you got Jason O'Mara in there. It's going to be intriguing to see. Not only O'Mara and Coulson discussed, but I'm waiting. I want to see a scene, which I probably bet we're going to get this season, season four, where it's Jason O'Mara's character, Coulson, and Talbot in a room together. Yeah, that will be really interesting because where's Talbot's head at right now? Right. After everything that happened last season and, and that whole the the dissolving of that other agency there. So what's going to happen there kind of thing. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens going forward. And one thing I like about Jason O'Mara, and the thing, reason I think he's going to fit so well, because he fits that, at, at times, humorous, sarcastic tone of the show, but there's also, he can flip that switch and become that serious commanding presence guy, too, which I think is exactly what you're going to want in a role like this. There's going to be times where he's going to be a little off-color, but then there's times where it's going to be get-down-to-business time, and I think he's going to command the screen. So I think that this is going to be a really good choice. And we're going to end Nerd News on a somber note this week, mostly because I grew up watching Thomas the Tank Engine, James. I knew that was more after your time. You were probably, what, in high school when Thomas the Tank Engine was a thing? I think that's about right, yeah. <laughs> so, so the reason why this is sad is Arc Productions, who is, of course, the former Stars Animation Toronto studio behind Thomas the Tank Engine, is heading into receivership and filed for bankruptcy this week. And around 500 employees have been locked out of the production studio. Yeah, and this is unfortunate. I mean, it definitely hasn't been a good year for Stars and Stars' former properties either. I mean, with Stars losing their Disney contract to Netflix and not being able to show Marvel Disney movies after a certain amount of time, now Arc Productions going in, and it's not even just... Thomas the Tank Engine, I mean, you're talking about stuff like Blazing Samurai, they also did some Marvel Lego stuff, they were doing something with Disney Channel, they just got done doing effects for Suicide Squad and Fear the Walking Dead, too, so there's so much stuff that this studio does, so it's it's childhood, it's 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 features, it's, it's animation, it's a whole bunch of different stuff, and anytime you see 500 people lose their jobs, it sucks. And it's heading into receivership because apparently the company failed to meet debt obligations. The actual, actually, the Ontario provincial government in late 2008 actually agreed 
to invest nearly $23 million annually in the then-Stars Animation Toronto studio until 2013 to expand the facility. Of course, they were going to create 250 new jobs, but again, that just you know fell apart and, and just things happened and it's just sad, man. I mean, you know, so it's, it's, isn't it kind of sad? And today I want to talk about really quick the state of not just childhood, more like child, 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 children's shows that we kind of grew up with. For example, Sesame Street leaving PBS now on HBO. Yeah. Towns Tang Engine Studios filing for bankruptcy and going into receivership. You know, it's sad. It's really, really sad that these great shows are going these new directions, you know? Yeah, and it's sad, too, because, I mean, we had that story come out about the Sesame Street, uh, the the human cast members being, you know, laid off, and then they weren't laid off, or it was a misunderstanding, whatever you want to believe kind of thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's sad, but even Sesame Street's not really the same anymore. I mean, it's, you know, it's political and preachy at times, so, I mean, the, it's it's kind of changed. It's not well, what it used to be kind of thing, well, and, and I'm sure Thomas Tank Engine does let me tell you about global warming, kids. So, uh, <laughs> well. That puff of smoke isn't good for the environment, Thomas. No, they're going to have Thomas, like, uh, carrying coal throughout. it be his whole thing, episode about clean coal, and Thomas is carrying it. It's like this new site. Thomas, the solar panel engine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's always, like... He said these coal trains, like, getting, like, angry at them and stuff like that because they're putting them out of work. <laughs> it's Bob the Builder, and he's pissed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of Thomas Tank Engine, though, it's like, uh, really quick, when I was growing up, and I think it was, like, Thomas and Friends or whatever, but George Carlin played Mr. Conductor, and then years oh, ago, God. I find out, you know, George Carlin's actual stand-up. I'm like, this was Mr. Fucking Conductor, really? Like, <laughs> Thomas, you can achieve your dreams. Cock, fuck, pussy, shit. <laughs> you know, I'm like, holy Christ! And I think the whole thing with the Sesame Street thing was because, listen, if you watched Sesame Street back in the day when Mr. Hooper died, that fucked up a lot of people. I think PBS even came out and said, listen, we're gonna be talking about death. <laughs> So your kids might not want to be watching the television yeah, or you're going to watch it be in the room with them because, I mean, the actors the are fucked up. And I think, the, you know, the actors they got that they I think they weren't laid off. I think they were more like, hey, we'll give you a retirement package and here you go. Thanks for your service kind of a thing. Because they're like, man, if another boy's cast members dies, we got to do another thing. Oh God! And, and that's kind of you know the, that's the kind of turn stuff that I'm talking about. It's like you know I appreciate what you're trying to do here, Sesame Street, but uh, I mean there's certain lessons the parents kind of want to handle on their own kind of thing. So I, I think that's part of it. You're right. The state of the state of kids' TV now is so different, and there's no set shows that I feel like y- you can go to. I mean, there's some stuff, but a lot of it's even stuff from several years ago too. Not not necessarily today. Can you imagine if somebody, if they didn't let one of the cashers go when they died, and it's like, this funeral is brought to you by the letter D for a dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, you could only have to go through that, but so many times. There's only so many letters in the alphabet that can sponsor funerals, I'm just saying. Right, exactly. But, I mean, I get it. And, I mean, to me, to, to, to another extent, too, I mean, even voice actors, you know, once the count starts to sound different, yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's a little weird for kids. Like, why does he sound different? Uh, I don't know. He's sick. Uh, yeah, so you have the count sitting like in a wheelchair, staring out a window. One beat in the heart monitor. 
but it's sad that that all this stuff has to happen, man. It it really, really is. And and I mean, this doesn't necessarily mean that something like Thomas the Tank Engine is going away because I'm sure it's still pretty profitable, even in the toys and stuff like that too. So I mean, they can always just sell it to make money. You know, we make jokes and we we talk about this, and it is a sad time. But you know what? The best thing we can do is remember all the happy times. That Sesame Street brought us when it was on PBS and Thompson Tank Engine brought us. If you have the old VHS tapes, like I, I think I still have my old Thompson Tank Engine VHS tapes, find some way you can put them on DVD or something like that. They'll transfer properly and you can watch them over and over again. And again, you know, when it comes to kids' shows, you now have Paw Patrol, which James's son is addicted to, literally. Yep. Yep. And, and Mother Goose Club and a bunch of other things that my niece is addicted to. But coming up next, speaking of things we're addicted to, we love DC's Rebirth. And one of the books that's just knocking it out of the park repeatedly, of course, is Green Lanterns. And the writer of that book, Sam Humphreys, is going to join us to talk about Green Lanterns and DC Rebirth. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy Podcasts come up next. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When we heard DC was announcing Rebirth, one of the books that jumped right out at us was Green Lanterns, not just because we were going to see Jessica Cruz and Simon Baz together, but because this guy was picked as the writer for the series. It's Sam Humphrey. Sam, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm wonderful. How y'all doing? We're doing excellent. As a matter of fact, when you first found out you were going to be working on Green Lanterns with Jessica Cruz and Simon Baz, how excited were you for to kind of work with two very different characters? Oh, I I was thrilled. I mean, it, that's that's the gig to me uh, is is writing Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. You know, Green Lanterns has an amazing legacy, and and I'm a huge fan. But to me, one of the greatest things about this project is that it's about Simon and it's about Jessica. And these are two you know newly minted Green Lanterns. Uh, they they still have years and years of experience, and they're also two very different characters. So being able to write both of them together and both of them learning what it takes and, and how to be Green Lanterns was like, that, that, that to me was the fun. That was the job. I, and so I was totally into it. Sam, when it comes to the villains in the series, I love how you've incorporated the Trostis and the whole Red Lantern Corps in there. What is it about them that made you feel they'd be the perfect adversary for Jessica and Baz in the series? Well... I mean, a lot of reasons. One is that they're just great characters. They're great villains. And I like where the Red Lanterns are coming from as characters. You know, the the whole thing about the villain being a hero in his own story. Most of these Rage Lanterns come from places that we can sympathize with. You know, Dexar, the the cat. He uh, was was a mystery cat on Earth. And, you know, his he, he got the, the Red Lantern was able to get revenge. And, you know, who among us have not felt rage, have not felt betrayed, have not felt stepped on or belittled and wanted revenge, um, and not even just in a fleeting moment, but wanted, wanted revenge for years and years. So these guys are, you know, in some ways, they're like they're like the cosmic version of Batman in that they, they believe that they are doing, writing justices across uh, the universe, and they'll do whatever it takes to do it. So to, to me, being able to write villains that had some relatable, recognizable traits for them was, was key. And Red Lanterns just flipped right into that role to me. And they, they look really cool and they bark blood. I mean, that's amazing, right. right? Come on. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as, a matter of fact, yeah. before, as a matter of fact, before we get into this week's issue that, that came out this week, issue number four, let's go back to issue three for a second because Simon Baz actually does something pretty incredible. He actually... 
cures a red lantern, which was a jump off the page moment for us. So are we finding out just how powerful Baz really is, or is there something else at play here? We're finding out how powerful Baz is, and there's something else at play here. A little of both. You know, Baz, in, in one of his, not his, his first appearance, but his very first story, he, uh, he did what the Green Lantern Corps said was impossible. He brought his best friend and brother-in-law in his ear back from a coma. Just the last issue of Green Lantern, we, we took a peek into the future of the Book of Oa, where it was said that Simon Baz is the miracle worker. So... That, that to me was a really interesting aspect of the character of the setup because, you know, in culture or stories, not even just in comics, but a lot of times we, we see or hear about miracle workers, but we don't understand what those formative years like mm-hmm. were like for them. You know, what, what, what's it like to be a normal human uh, and, and be told that you are the son of God or to be a regular human and decide to dedicate your life to the poor and charity, like a Mother Teresa. We, we, we tend to see the idealized version of these people because we see them in, in the rearview mirror. We don't, we don't see them necessarily as, as they're growing up. So that, that to me was a really interesting part of his character, especially for someone who, personality-wise, you wouldn't peg as a miracle worker. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, you know, very, he's very cocky and he's very sure of himself, but... Uh, you wouldn't necessarily say he's, he's a miracle worker. And also, I, I want to know, what do you have to do for <laughs> the Guardians of the Universe to call you a miracle worker in, in their one and only book? You have to do some pretty cool stuff, but not just cool. It has to be really significant and really historic and kind of change the way we see the universe and maybe kind of change the way we, we relate to each other. So this is something that, you know, is is obviously bigger than one arc or one issue, but this is one of the most attractive things about writing Simon Baz to me is really getting into, getting into this and seeing this transformation in him. Well, yeah, especially because, you know, we see a little bit of him in Guantanamo Bay and get a little bit of his past, too, so seeing him as a miracle worker really is kind of like a, a nice turning of the page and just a, a great, great growth of a character. Sure, or just, you know, seeing somebody who you know, was, was discriminated against and uh, assumed mm-hmm. to be a terrorist and, and just seeing that he's a, he's a normal human being with a family. He's, right, you know, exactly. Uh, and and, and he's, he, he's an American and he has, uh, you know, hopes and dreams just like anybody else and he has agency over his own life and when given the opportunity, when that Green Lantern ring comes, he, he does the right thing. Exactly, and the character we got a little bit more of in issue four, it's actually out now, is the former Guardian. What kind of test... Will his stay have on Baz's family members as the series progresses? <laughs> well, right now he's a bit of a handful. <laughs> he's, he's known as the Rogue Guardian. He's, he's a guardian who's been in exile for many, many, many years. Uh, he's, he's not one of the clean, pristine guardians of Oa who, you know, ne- never utter a swear word and always keep their fingernails clean. Uh, this, this, this guy is cut from a different cloth. So on top of being a little blue alien who, who comes into their home, he's, he's kind of uh, follows the beat of his own drummer. You know, he's, he's very unique, even by human standards. So um, it'll be a challenge for, for them to sort of have this house guest. But, you know, having him on Earth is also going to be a challenge for Jessica and Simon because of the ring that he's carrying it's a ring that's never been seen before. 
It's a ring with very unique properties that sets it apart from every power ring we've ever seen in the DC universe. And I guess that's all I can say about the ring, but I, I can, I think I can tell you that the next big arc is called the Phantom Lantern. And I can just kind of leave those two facts in front of you and you can make whatever kind of connection you decide to make. Wow. That's a nice little, that's a nice juicy nugget right there. We're talking to writer of Green Lantern, Sam Humphreys. Of course, issue four available right now, local shops and digitally issue five coming out on August the 17th. So now, Sam, first of all, I didn't know the Red Lanterns were such good gardeners because we have... We've seen a lot about the Hell Tower in the last couple of issues, especially the one that's out this week. Now, when I look at the Hell Tower, even before the Rage Seed gets put in there, it's really powerful. Do you feel like that kind of, in a way, this is your Death Star? God, I don't know. I've never really thought about that comparison before. I, I really I, I really don't even think of it as mine. An idea I came up with when I was just really thinking about the, the Red Lanterns and what they want and what they would do next, really, you know, when, when I first started thinking about them, I, I kind of went back to that, that core that I was talking about earlier. These guys believe that they are a force of justice in the universe, not a force of fear or terror or a barking blood all over the place. They, they believe that they are righting wrong, and they believe that they are the only ones qualified to do it. And if you were the Red Lantern Corps, what, what would you do next? What would you do next to fulfill that mission? What I came up with was Red Dawn, which we've talked a lot about, but we haven't seen it all. And I thought about what you, what you would need for a phenomenon like Red Dawn, like a, a, a situation like Red Dawn. And uh, I came up with things like the Hell Tower and the Rage Seed and kind of made the Red Lanterns work for it. You know what I mean? Like Red Dawn is going to be a big... Big, huge thing, huge story in the book, and um, I really wanted to see the lengths that the Red Lanterns were willing to go for this. Definitely. Now, one of the things I loved that you did, Sam, in the beginning with the Rebirth issue uh, was you, you emphasized the whole team aspect of Jessica and Simon by combi- having Hal Jordan combine their lanterns into one power station. So here's a question for you. What's something you and an artist combined or did to become a great team? Well, Robson Roca was the first work on the regular series, and, and he and I gelled right away because he was a great artist for the Red Lanterns because he loves drawing creepy, horrible stuff. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know this about him. He's so good at it. I didn't even know about him, but he was turning in thumbnails, and he was adding like little notes on the margins with arrows, and he's pointing at things, and he's, he's like this is terrible. I'm really going to draw it really well. Or yes, lots of blood. This is going to be horrible. And I was like, you are the right person for this storyline. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the newest issue too, it hits a lot of heavy emotional beats and dialogue, especially, you know, inside the hell tower. When you saw how your artists and your art team handled them, what were your first thoughts? I'm really asking them to juggle two things at once. One is the the emotional beats right. on their faces, you know, uh, what, what we sometimes call acting, even though it's not acting at all, it's just drawing human faces. And, and the other part is, is drawing the, uh, the horrible environment that they're in deep inside the hell tower. And not a lot of artists are good at both of those things, you know what I mean? There's a tall order, but I think the artists who 
worked on the scenes did uh, an amazing job on, on pulling off both those things. And, you know, one, one of them is to bring to life this horrible, terrible hellscape, and the other is to portray some real, authentic, vulnerable emotions on human faces. And um, to get those both on one page is, is an amazing feat. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the other things I love about this whole series is the internal monologue, because we're starting to see that come out to the surface a little bit, especially in issue four. So do you feel like that's kind of the key for Baz and Jessica to finally become a team and realize their full potential? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think there's no question that these two characters are like so guarded against each other right from the get-go, right from the first time they appear on the page together in that beautiful full-page spread by Ed Bennis in a rebirth, the Rebirth issue. And uh, they're constantly on guard and, and like they, they don't know if they can trust each other. They don't know if they should trust each other. All, all they know is that if they want to be Green Lanterns, they have to do it together. So being able to, you know, to be open and to be honest with each other, but not just with themselves, is something that's key to their their evolution as as Green Lanterns and as heroes and as people and as partners. You know, I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary here by saying that the key of relationships is communication, Mm -hmm. whether that's romantic relationships or friendships or working relationships or or what have you. So, yeah, I, I, I would say it's a, a key to their filling their potential as partners. And Sam, before we let you go, man, where can people find you on social media? Mainly on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Humphreys. It's a very creative username, I know, but that's who you can find <laughs> at Sam How can we find Sam Humphreys? Oh, I know, at Sam Humphreys. Oh, that sounds like go. a great thing to do. For anybody listening to this and if you haven't picked up Green Lanterns yet, I mean, go to your local shops or even digitally. Get the whole series up to this point because I don't think Nick and I aren't exaggerating when we say that this is one of the top three series, I think, in Rebirth right oh, now. Oh, definitely. Sam Humphrey is an issue four available right now. Oh, thank you very shops. much, guys. And digitally, issue five going to be available August the 17th. You're going to want to pick it up. Sam Humphreys, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us today. Guys, thank you very much for having me. I loved it. Thank you. Well, James, I think that it's no lie that DC's Rebirth is going to be and it is one of the biggest successes in comic book history. I totally agree with that. And I mean, I know that people are like, why are you guys talking about Rebirth so much? You know why? Because it's good. We talk about good things on this show and it's not just a couple books. There's so many good ones. Matter of fact, we were talking off the air about how, you know, this is a top three DC Rebirth book. And that's saying a lot because there's so many good ones. Oh, yeah, man, from from Batman to Green Arrow to Nightwing, and, you know, you had the Suicide Squad stuff that came out recently, too, and, you know, it's just, the great thing about Rebirth, what makes it work so well is, they actually got writers and artists on these books who just fit, personality-wise, and they fit so well. And if Sam Humphreys wasn't the perfect choice for Green Lanterns, I don't know who was. I remember when we were talking about when they announced the creative teams for Rebirth, and I saw that one. We were talking about this yeah. off the air, and I, and I texted you, and I was like, dude, did you see who's writing Green Lanterns? Yeah. And the, the joy was just palpable. And, well, mind you, too, before Green Lanterns, he was writing Star-Lord for Marvel. So right. I'm like, if there's anybody that can get the Green Lanterns or something galactic mm-hmm. you know, in the universe, do it well. It's it's definitely Sam. And, and these offhand flawed characters that he has yes. to work with, and they're kind of inexperienced too. It's like subject and medium here. This is perfect. 
Yeah, man. I mean, again, just Green Lantern's number four. It's out right now. You have to go get it. If you haven't started reading it yet, shame on you. It's an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. series. You have to start off with the Rebirth issue because, like, what grabbed me with the series in the beginning was, you know, when I talked to him and I asked him the question about Hal Jordan, when he combined their two power, you know, their power stations into one stage and says you have to charge at the same time in order for your rings to be recharged and work, I'm like, he's got me. Like, like yep. when you have this and you say, okay, you know, it's kind of like the mom or the dad saying, okay, if you can't get well together, we're just going to tie you together or, or, or handcuff you two together by this way right. or this form. And you're going to learn to like each other. You know what I'm saying? And people know, if you've listened to this show, you know how I feel about the Jessica Cruz character. I said it was going to be big and Sam's just taken her character up another notch, took Simon Baz up another notch. And like Nick said, if you're not reading this, this book Basically, if when you read this, you'll be like, I love Green Lantern again. Well, and like I said, it's just with these characters, especially with Jessica and Simon, these are two very damaged characters. You have Jessica with, you know, her mental anxiety and a couple of mental mm-hmm. issues. And then you have Simon Baz, who, of course, you know, he was an innocent prisoner of war. He, you know, was detaining Guantanamo, you know, and stuff like that. And it's just, it's kind of like, it's it's a bit of a redemption story in a case, you know? Absolutely, and you couldn't have two more damaged people that are damaged for so different reasons. Yeah. That's the other thing. We're at we're two different ends of the spectrum here as far as where their trauma came from, but they're coming together and finding this commonality that's just beautiful the way that Sam's telling the story. So go get this thing. If you've got to go to your local shop and pester them, don't wait for the trade. Don't even wait for the trade. Go get all these issues. Hopefully they're at your local shops. Digitally is an option too. Power read this. Binge read it because you're going to be so happy by the time you get to the end of issue four. Exactly. Speaking of the end of things, that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Sam Humphreys, writer of Green Lanterns, for coming on and talking about the series. It's an amazing series. And thanks to also to our friend Clark over at DC as well. Just an amazing job as always. And hey, if you want to hear more of us on social media, be sure to hit us up on Twitter at downers 757 I'm at Merck with one R, Mr. Witham. I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. You want to get us on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, you can actually go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got our Facebook page right up there. You can like us right there. The like button is right there. We also have our, our other social media connections. You want to find us on SoundCloud, subscribe to us there. You can do that as well. Or even on iTunes. It's all at downandnerdypodcast.com. Yeah, we have also, you know, extra reviews we do, you know, each week as well for people, you know, in terms of the comics. And go check those out. Read those. Get everything you need to fill up your nerd heart. But again, as always, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Press safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.